This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us. Keep on praying for this country. We'll see what comes of it. Boy, there's some weird stories coming out about what's going on. The worst thing was seeing all of those video images of fires across Washington, D.C. and seeing the graffiti on the World War II Memorial and and the Lincoln Memorial. It's just it's beyond my capacity to understand how it gets to this point other than my understanding of what happens when a nation rejects the Lord our God. And I think that is the key to understanding everything that is going on. How could you allow this to happen, Lord? I've never really understood that question, to tell you the truth. I guess that's another rant for another day. But how could you let this happen, Lord? The Lord can do whatever he wants. He's God and we're not. He is the potter and we are the clay. And we are to bow the knee to him. We are to obey him. We are to repent before him. And we seem to get that backwards sometimes. I'm not at all surprised that we are seeing this sort of situation, although it is shocking on its face. I'm not as surprised as many people maybe are, just because I think there's so much that we have done as a nation that has led us to this point. We have done so much in the way of shaking our fist in the face of a holy God, and then we expect there will be no consequences especially when you consider history and how history is played out. And all you need to do is read your Bible and see how the you know rebellious uh, people in the Old Testament ended up. You know, it's just not something that we should be ignorant about. At any rate, I have been amazed to see the critical race theory that is propelling a lot of evangelical entities to really have takes that are wrong and wrongly stated at the wrong time. As I said on yesterday's show, I'm appalled at what happened to George Floyd. I don't know anybody who's not appalled at what happened to George Floyd. I don't know anybody who is not seeking the justice for this family, who is suffering because of what happened to this man. And and I don't know anybody who has any problem whatsoever with this police officer who held him down by his neck, being arrested and charged with murder and manslaughter. Nobody is against. Everybody wants that. I don't know anybody who's against that. But what happens is, as you've seen in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, you have seen critical race theory, you know, codified in this Resolution 9 that was passed at the Southern Baptist Convention saying that intersectionality or critical race theory in particular should be used as an analytical tool. It's just an analytical tool. Well, the problem is critical race theory, as even Dr. Carol Swain points out, is rooted in cultural Marxism. And what is the worldview of a lot of these people who are coming into these cities and rioting? It's a Marxist worldview. So this is a problem, is it not, when you have evangelical entities buying into a critical race theory premise in order to push a narrative on Christians right now? What, what we need more than anything else is a word from the Lord. We need the word of God. We need to be stressing to people, you know, we're under God's wrath. We're under God's judgment. We need to bow the knee before him. We need to repent of our sins as a nation and repent of our sins individually and, and beg the Lord for mercy and live out our lives in holiness and godliness 
witnesses, people of God, and join hands across ethnicities and across races and say, we are one in Christ Jesus. And thankfully, there are a lot of Christians out there from a lot of different races and ethnicities who totally get it, who totally understand it, and who are standing on the right side right now. But unfortunately, here's an example of what it means to stand on the wrong side. This really bugged me. Christianity Today, as we know, published that editorial by Mark Golley back in December, calling for Trump to be removed from office. And it was predicated upon the lie that the left was pushing during its failed coup attempt against the president over the Ukrainian phone call. And they basically bought into the premise that it was a quid pro quo situation. Trump was actually trying to use money as a a way of making sure that the Ukrainian president went after Joe Biden's family, et cetera, et cetera. It was never true. But Christianity today went with a premise, oh, this is why he must be removed from office. That isn't why they wanted him removed from office. They wanted him removed from office because they don't like Trump. They're liberals, they're elitists, they call themselves elitists over at Christianity Today by Mark Ali's own, own admission. So this is the background. Now they have a couple of stories. I think I'd mentioned one of these yesterday. One of them has this letter from a quarantined home expressing disappointment with some of my white brothers and sisters in Christ and talks about, you know, racism and bigotry. And, you know, it's kind of the critical race theory stuff. Then they have this one. The revolution will not be videoed. This is by Dennis R. Edwards. He's a seminary professor at North Park in Chicago. And it is just some of the stuff in here just blows my mind. I'm thinking at a time when we desperately need Christians to point to the Bible and point to the word of God and point to the Lord and point to hope and point to peace and point to reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's just a critical race theory screed. It's unbelievable. I'll read you a little bit of this. For many of us, anger, sadness, frustration, and fatigue are not episodic responses, but chronic conditions. Well, that sounds like you have a bigger problem that maybe needs to be addressed. If you're constantly angry, sad, frustrated, and fatigued, maybe you need to go to the doctor. You know, maybe there's a medical condition there. Anyway, he says, in recent days, we've all seen, heard, and read of the lynching of Ahmaud Aubrey, the shooting of Breonna Taylor, the use of the police by a white woman to threaten Christian Cooper, Minneapolis police officers executing George Floyd. Oh, is that what it is? You don't even have to say allegedly anymore. The man hasn't even been tried yet. And of the fact that COVID-19 disproportionately harms black and brown people. Wait a minute. How do those things go together? You have police officers involved in various incidents in which race may have played a part. And then you throw in COVID at the end. Okay. I have been a pastor in Minneapolis and my heart is heavy as people have taken to the streets to demonstrate against injustice. Well, they were rioting. There were some demonstrators, I'm sure, who were there and were planning to be peaceful, but it quickly descended into a riot and people losing their businesses and fires being set. But it's just demonstrating against injustice. The videos have helped some white people to see a bit of what many black and brown people know. White America has long had its knee on our necks. It's a pretty broad statement. That's a pretty broad statement because this is a very big country and very diverse. And there are a lot of different people of a lot of different backgrounds. How anyway, it's critical race theory. I'm sure that some who just read that sentence are saying not all of white America. Guilty as charged. Yes, I am. But that's the problem. It's hard for people of color to feel that white America is with us 
and not against us. White America has not demonstrated the collective resolve to repent, rebuke, and reorient itself against racial injustice. That includes Christians. White Christians can opt out of outrage over racial injustice. The status quo works for them. Well, my response to this, and he goes on to call for a revolution, and at the end, he's like, oh, no, it's a revolution of love. Well, okay, but then it's all stacked with all of this, you know, all of these assumptions. White America's bad, and white Christians are bad, and we're not outraged. Guess what, Dennis Edwards? I am outraged over what George Floyd went through. I am very outraged. Everybody I know who's a Christian who's white is outraged about what happened to George Floyd. You treat white Americans as if we're just some monolithic group of people who couldn't care less about our neighbor. It's not true. And here's the thing. When you think about the importance of the bigger picture in all of this, it is so unhelpful, at least, and dangerous at worst for this magazine that has the word Christianity in its title to be pushing this stuff right now instead of trying to actually do some biblical exegesis on these issues that are of such spiritual importance to all Americans right now. That's the tragedy of it. And you're seeing it over at the ERLC website, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. They had a prayer of lament for racial injustice, which is fine. But in the prayer of lament from this writer, when he gets to the point of talking about the riots and the people who have lost their businesses, lost their livelihoods and people who have lost loved ones, all they said was, well, you know, we just pray that the Lord will be with you and that he will provide. I'm like, wait a minute. Don't those people get justice? Shouldn't we be praying for justice for those people? They're black business owners who've lost their livelihoods. When you begin to delineate all of this stuff and and make it a racial issue and not a human issue, then you're missing the whole point. And you're also missing the point if you think all of these riots are simply about race. There are people out there rioting who don't even know who George Floyd is. There's video evidence of that. So pray for this country. There's a lot ahead today. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. I was afraid 
I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at Janet Mefford. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. In a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court, as you know, has just rejected an emergency appeal from South Bay United Pentecostal Church in California. The church was seeking injunctive relief from unjust gubernatorial restrictions on gathering as a church body during the COVID-19 pandemic. This goes back to Governor Gavin Newsom claiming that he was opening up the churches in his state, but singling out houses of worship by imposing on religious worshipers alone this 25% capacity limit with a cap of 100 people, a directive that has been called patently discriminatory. And even though Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote a really good dissent in the case, it was very disheartening to see Chief Justice John Roberts side with the court's liberals and write his own concurring opinion. The good news is that the case is far from over. We're going to get some details on it now from the church's attorney, Charles LaMandry, special counsel for the Thomas More Society and partner at LaMandry and Jana LLP. Charles, so good to have you with us. How are you? Just fine, Janet. Good to be with you as well. Yeah, good to talk to you. Well, this was certainly a big disappointment, but you have noted this was just a one-line decision not to grant emergency relief, not a decision on the merits. Why is that an important thing for people to understand? Because the governors in various states are not going to be able to cite to this decision and say it's in any way uh, binding on uh, any court that would have to apply uh, the constitutional law in interpreting closure orders in other states. It only applies to our case in California, and it really only applies to the set of circumstances before the court at that time. And even Justice Roberts, in his uh, concurring opinion, made it clear that the situation is evolving. Uh, our next brief is due before the Ninth Circuit on Friday. Already, San Diego, where we're located and our client's church is located, is opening up uh, more and more. You're seeing uh, people out uh, dining, outdoor dining areas and such. And I think the court is very likely to look at it uh, differently in a couple of months if the case gets back to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the fact that uh, it was a concurring opinion by Justice Roberts, which was a surprise and a disappointment, really, at least a surprise to me, because I thought that uh, he'd be with the conservatives rather than the liberals on this one. Uh, but nonetheless, no other justices joined that concurring opinion. So it's really not citable as applicable law. The bottom line is it's very difficult to get an emergency motion granted uh, before the United States Supreme Court. It really happens. It's a very high uh, standard. So uh, the fact that it wasn't granted in and of itself is not a big surprise to anybody. It's just this uh, split in the votes and the strong dissent by um, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, one would have thought, that maybe Justice Roberts would have come along, uh, along with him on it. But regardless, as you indicated, the case is far from over. 
Uh, we're going to have a briefing uh, at the Ninth Circuit again on the merits. That decision was not on the merits uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court last Friday, which is, again, why it's not really applicable authority in any other case. Right. Uh, there will be a decision on the merits before the Ninth Circuit, presumably in August. They just set the hearing date. Uh, I think it was Saturday they set a hearing date. Uh, for the middle of August, and then uh, more than likely it'll go back up to the U.S. Supreme Court where we have a complete record in our position to get a decision on the merits. Good. Well, this church really did something very important because if you are not willing to litigate this, this opens up a door for more of this kind of tyranny. And I I was really troubled when I was reading what uh, Justice Roberts had to say when he indicated it would be unwise for the court to intervene on an emergency basis as state officials are grappling with this pandemic and basically saying justices should not interfere when there's a public health issue and local officials are dealing with it. But doesn't that assume right on its face? that elected officials are always acting in good faith. Well, it, it does. And, and again, if you look at the circumstances, a month or two ago uh, was, was one thing where the concern uh, may have been more legitimate than it is now. But, for example, in San Diego, where a client's church is located, we have the second largest county in the most populous state, over 3.4 million people. I think there's been a total of um, uh, something like 200, 250 coronavirus deaths. And of course, we don't want to see anybody die. But when you look at the numbers more closely, all of those uh, people had comorbidities. I think the number, uh, when the Board of Supervisors uh, looked at it, uh, only six people exclusively had uh, COVID-19. And many of the other people would have died from the comorbidities. Uh, Anyhow, they never got to COVID-19. So uh, does it make sense under those circumstances to close the entire county, state, or a nation? Now, presumably, uh, a month or two from now, when it would um, be reconsidered by the Ninth Circuit and then probably three or four months by the Supreme Court, hopefully there'll be uh, even much fewer cases of, of COVID-19, if any at all. I understand from medical experts, it looks like the virus is, is dying out. And, of course, we all hope that it's the case. But <laughs> you can't give that kind of deference to county officials when the nervous don't support it. Right. Uh, already... Uh, looking at the leading causes of death, both in San Diego and California at large, COVID-19 would not even uh, make the list of the top 10 causes of death, along with cancer and diabetes and heart disease and accidents and suicide. So, yeah, it is assuming that the uh, government officials are always acting in good faith in in, in the best interest. And um, that's not always, as we well know, uh, justified. Right. Uh, so that's why the courts are there to protect the constitutional rights of people. And we hope that they will be inclined to do their job when they have a fuller record on the merits. Well, the other thing that comes to mind is how this whole thing has kind of unfolded because there there was a request to be open for worship on the part of the church on May 11th. Then you had the Ninth Circuit panel deny the request. Then you filed this request with the Supreme Court and Newsom relented. So the fact that he relented indicates to me that he knows, to some extent at least, that the shutdown that he was doing was not going to possibly be well-received at the Supreme Court. That's right. I I think what he uh, did by saying, okay, you could have 25% or 100 people, whichever is uh, less, uh, is the only thing that saved him from having any type of defensible order, at least in the view of five out of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, and it was even more obvious with the companion motion uh, being filed by an attorney out of Florida 
we know, who was uh, representing a, a church in Chicago. Yes. And uh, there, the governor's closure order was only allowing 10 people uh, in the church. And once their emergency motion was filed and the court asked for uh, an opposition brief, both in our case and that other case from the gover- governors, uh, the governor of Illinois, three hours before he defiled papers, just lifted the closure order entirely yes. for, the, yep. for the state and said, well, it's, it's advisory. We prefer you do what California is doing. 25% or 100, whichever is less, but we're not going to enforce even that. So unquestionably, uh, this litigation, both in California and in Illinois, had the desired effect at least of getting uh, some flexibility in California on the churches being able to open for Pentecost Sunday, even with the limitations, and in Chicago, really with no limitations. So um, it was beneficial in that regard. Absolutely. Well, what about South Bay United Pentecostal Church? What is it about this particular church that has made them so determined to fight this in the legal system? Because a lot of churches will agree, but won't necessarily take the important step that this church did. What is their particular position there in their own congregation that has made them so bold in fighting for this right, to their religious freedom? Really, it's the pastor, uh, Art Hodges, He's very patriotic. He knows his constitution. He knows the history of the nation. Uh, and he's not afraid to take a stand that may be unpopular with some people. I mean, he even took a stand when the public library uh, in the area of his church allowed uh, readings by transvestite men to children. Mm-hmm. And his church ended up um, being uh, attacked with graffiti and such as mm-hmm. a result was vandalized. As a result of that. Um, so, uh, as you well know, uh, among uh, pastors, uh, as well as uh, society at large, uh, some people have a lot more courage than others. Yes. And, and even in my own church, being a Catholic, I've been disappointed, to be honest with you, uh, with a lot of the bishops um, not coming forward, although they they did in, I think it was Minnesota, they said, we're going to open whether you say we can or not, because you don't have a right to stop us. Right. And then the uh, the governor caved in. Uh, more bishops, more pastors should be doing that. Uh, Pastor Hodges uh, is just a unique man, and uh, if you hear him speak, I would encourage you to interview him as well. He's uh, very articulate and um, and has a passion about these issues. So it totally comes down, I think, to his uh, sense of conviction that this is the right thing to do. Now, his church is a case in point. It holds uh, 600. Uh, why would you limit it uh, to 100? He could easily have uh, two or three hundred people, and still have the minimum six-foot social distancing that applies to everyone else. I just read an article with another pastor in Fresno, his church holds 1,500. He said, I will not be limited by the 100-person uh, uh, limit. I will social distance like everywhere else, so six-foot intervals. But how could you justify limiting someone to 100 in a, in a church that holds uh, 1,500? So. Right, right. Um, that's what's going on. And, and you know, as Pastor uh, Hodges said, you know, just look around. Uh, there's plenty of places where people are legally congregating uh, uh, with six-foot social distancing and numbers far in excess of 100, in, including at, at Costco and warehouses and, and, and factories. Uh, and, in you know, the airlines, I mean, even if you skip the middle seat, people are far closer than six feet apart, obviously. So it makes no sense to... Uh, discriminate against the churches, particularly when, as Pastor Hodges said, since the churches are the only group that enjoys First Amendment constitutional protection, 
they should be at the head of the line in terms of having their rights recognized, uh, not at the end of the line. Instead, they've thrown churches in with movie theaters and with concerts and such, and it's just not the same. It's not a for-profit endeavor where they're trying to fill every seat necessarily, uh, and uh, they can uh, respectfully implement social distancing by skipping uh, pews, having families uh, sit together with, in Pastor Hodges' case, they actually removed um, a large amount of seating to ensure that people couldn't be more than six feet apart. That's great. So other groups, you know, I don't know if the people that do the concerts or theaters or whatever would be in a position to do that. But again, churches have First Amendment protection and they should not have been grouped with those entertainment type of organizations. Absolutely. Charles Lamandry, thank you so much for the update. and We'll keep a close eye on it. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, just recently, the Supreme Court took up the question of rules for the Electoral College, spending several hours deliberating over whether a state can remove or clamp down on electors who don't follow its popular vote. And this is all happening as more leftist politicians are calling for the Electoral College to be abolished altogether. And the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has been passed in 15 states now and also Washington, D.C. But how many Americans understand why and how our founders established the Electoral College in the first place? place and how many of us really understand what would happen to our national elections if the Electoral College were to be abolished. We're going to talk about it today with Trent England, who is executive vice president at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, where he also directs the Save Our States project. And he is the author of Why We Must Defend the Electoral College. Trent, it's just great to have you here with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Janet, for having me on the show. Oh, it's great to have you here. Well, this movement to abolish the Electoral College, we all know, kind of heated up after the 2016 election when Hillary lost. And they say this is all about fairness, fairness in elections. But you have said the Electoral College is under attack because it matters. Can you clarify the real reasons here that we're seeing this movement to abolish the Electoral College? That's that's right. I mean, the Electoral College is really important. It's integral to our constitutional structure. And, you know, it it matters to the folks who are trying to get rid of it in in really two ways. I mean, on the one hand, you have partisan sour grapes, right? People who are upset that Hillary Clinton lost, upset that Al Gore lost, and they think changing the rules is going to help them win elections. But it, it also matters because it's part of that system of checks and balances in our constitution and there there is an ideology present on the on the american left that really just takes a dim view of any checks and balances they think government should have more power and they view things like the electoral college that that work to you know in, in this case even place a kind of a check on majority power, they view those things as being illegitimate. And so, you know, in a sense, you have people on the left who, who have a, a perfect sort of confluence of their, their political interests and their ideological interests here that are, you know, driving them to try to get rid of this part of our Constitution. 
Yeah. What well, reminds me a little bit of the nuclear option in the Senate. They, they don't want it until they want it. I mean, what would have happened if Trump had won the popular vote and Hillary had won the Electoral College? I don't think they would be pushing for it the way that they are now. Well, that's that's right. I mean, people forget that the the Gore campaign in 2000 had a legal memo drawn up right before the election because they they thought it was possible that that Al Gore would win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote. I mean, you know, these elections where you have that happen are very, very close, especially 2000. I mean, it was sort of a jump ball election. And uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard for partisans to predict exactly how these things are, are going to play out, which is why it's really important to look at how the Electoral College shapes our politics over time rather than just, you know, the, the last election or the next election. Exactly. Now, one of the things that you point out in the book is that the framers of the Constitution actually considered a parliamentary system or a popular vote, and they rejected both of those and created the Electoral College instead. What happened? Because many people will not recall maybe what happened at the time of the debate that went on over this issue. But fill us in a little bit, if you would, and school us on why it was the Electoral College prevailed. Yeah. So, I mean, the parliamentary point is really important because, you know, sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, it it was going to be a popular vote, and then they they created this electoral college. And the reality is that the first draft of the Constitution called for a parliamentary system. That was what was in the Virginia plan. And, you know, that that's, you know, most of the countries around the world that we consider to be democracies are actually parliamentary. You know, that's how Canada and the United Kingdom and Australia and Italy and Spain, all these countries... They have a parliamentary system. Their head of, of government is elected by their their parliament, what, what would be for us our Congress. And they, they didn't want a system like that because they recognized that all of the politics in Congress would influence the, the presidency. You wouldn't have an independent president. So they, they kind of rejected the parliamentary system but had a very hard time figuring out another model, because when they thought about a popular vote, they, they instantly realized that the biggest population centers would have all of the power and that it doesn't change very much, right? So, right. you know, New York back then was one of these big population centers. And of course, New York today has continued to be one of these big population centers. And they, they didn't want a system that basically said to the smaller states, you know, states like Rhode Island, states like, uh, you know, like like uh, Vermont uh, or South Carolina or Georgia. They didn't they didn't want to freeze those areas out of presidential politics. And so they came up with a compromise. You know, the Electoral College is really a compromise. It it pushes the power down into the states. It uses the same math as Congress. So it, there is a parliamentary element to it in, in that sense. Every state has the same power in the Electoral College that it has in, in Congress, in the House and the Senate. Uh, but states are empowered to figure out how to represent themselves. And over time, you know, very quickly, really, every state started holding an election. The people elect the presidential electors and the presidential electors elect the president. It's a two-step democratic process channeled through the states. And by doing that, they created a system that, on, on the one hand, can be decentralized. The power stays in the states. But on the other hand, it's much more inclusive and sort of pulls us together as a country because 
you, you can't win with just one region or just a few cities. You actually have to win by winning a whole bunch of states, which forces our, our candidates and our parties to build much bigger coalitions. Right. And that's a really important point. The other thing that comes up, some people have raised this issue before, is the history of the United States is we had states joining the union. It wasn't individuals joining the union. So what part does that play in the role of the Electoral College really being the most fair way to do it? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, we are a nation of states, which is something, you know, fairly unique. You go back to the debates at the time of the American founding, and that was a that was a big issue. Can we put together this nation of states and, and maintain the independence of the states in, in a lot of ways while also creating a, uh, you know, creating a nation out of those states? And uh, we, we've been very successful because we have done that, because we have competition. You know, we we know, right? Competition makes things better. That That's not just the case when you're trying to invent a better smartphone. It's also the case when you're trying to invent better public policy. And so our states are smarter because they compete with each other on this level playing field called the United States. And this, the Electoral College respects that and protects that because it keeps control of elections at the state level. And, and that, you know, that means that our election policies are able to be kept at the state level. But in, in kind of a larger sense, it, it means that states really are still sovereign because they control their own elections. And we don't have, you know, the president is not in charge of presidential elections, right? Which, right. which is probably a very good thing. Right. Well, now, when people get all worked up about the popular vote, hey, wait a minute, you know, when I vote for my senator, I don't have an electoral college involved. When I vote for my mayor, I don't have an electoral college involved. What is the distinction uh, that you would use to explain to people why the electoral college for the presidency, but then a direct election for lesser officials, maybe on the state level and otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as easy as the fact that, that scale matters, right? The bigger a system is, uh, the, that system changes. And so the, the way that you might elect somebody uh, for a homeowners association may not be the best system in a larger, you know, on a larger scale. The way we elect somebody for senator may not be the best system to elect president of the United States. And that's that's basically what what every parliamentary system recognizes, right? You can in- elect individual members of parliament or individual, you know, members of the House of Representatives, but when you come to electing somebody to be the executive, the, the head of government over the whole thing, then you you want a system that has some more checks and balances that requires some greater balance in there, and that's why when it comes to electing the president of the the whole United States. We have this this system. It's a little more complicated, but it does guarantee a better a better balance. Some of those checks and balances that protect all of us. Absolutely, Trent England with us. His book, "Why We Must Defend the Electoral College." We'll take a quick break and come right back to the conversation. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Stay with us.
This is a story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw away my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you please join Preborn in providing love and support for young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. Just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, there is a lot of political upheaval right now, and it's never been the case that we've avoided political upheaval, but it really is a weird year. And and in the midst of all of this, we have an election coming up, as we know, in November, and we have many people on the left who are saying, let's abolish the Electoral College. They want to right the ship as they see it from 2016, and now we have this national popular vote campaign that's been somewhat successful. They have passed this now in 15 states and the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and we're talking with Trent England, who is Executive Vice President at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs and author of Why We Must Defend the Electoral College about why this is such a bad idea. Let's talk about this a little bit, Trent, because a lot of people don't know about this. People who are not involved maybe in listening to, to various you know sources of information on this national popular vote project may not be up to speed on what's going on. But tell people why it is this particular effort is problematic. Yes. Yeah, so after Al Gore lost back in 2000, some folks on the political left were looking for a way to get rid of the Electoral College, but they realized amending the Constitution was just too difficult. You have to have a national consensus, really, to do that. And so they came up with this other model. And, And what they realized is states have flexibility to decide how they choose their presidential electors. And, uh, you know, states have always used that power to reflect the will of the people of their state, right, in in different ways. Uh, But somehow it's reflected what the people of of their own state want. What these folks behind the national popular vote movement came up with is a, a plan, a state law that says we're going to ignore the voters of our state. And instead, we will cast our electoral votes based on the national vote. 
So in uh, in Colorado, where there's a big fight going on over this right now, um, if if Colorado passes this national popular vote law, uh, they, they sort of passed it already, but the people are going to vote there in November on whether to keep it. If they do that, and if the if the interstate compact goes into effect, if this law takes effect, Colorado would cast its electoral votes based on the the popular votes in the whole country. So you, you could have a, you know, to take the most extreme example, you could have a presidential candidate who's not even on the ballot in Colorado, never campaigns in Colorado, but is super popular in California, New York, and a few other places, and gets the most popular votes nationwide, all of Colorado's electoral votes would go for that candidate. So it's a way to jury rig the electoral college to force it to follow the popular vote and therefore, you know, basically get around the Constitution and, and create a national popular vote system. Yeah, it, it's very disturbing because what one thing that you mentioned before is when you have very heavily blue states, for example, like New York and California and, and highly populous states as well, then instead of spending time competing for votes in swing states, as politicians have historically done, candidates would then invest most of their time going to these vote-rich urban centers, wouldn't they? and just spend time on the ground there and you don't need to bother with the rest of the people. That's also a problem in and of itself. Well, that's right. I mean, the the political map would become about population density because the denser the population, the easier it is to, to politically organize, to reach people. You have more people in those media markets, right? And so, so the, the presidential campaigns would start off focusing on what are those most population-dense areas, the biggest media markets? And, and then you would also have the question of just j- sort of radicalizing your base. So yeah. how can you drive up uh, the turnout in the areas where you're already really popular? So, you know, Democrats, I mean, for Democrats, it's really easy because, right, they're super popular in the big cities. It's already the most population-dense areas and if they can just, you know, get people really riled up in those areas and maybe they can spike turnout up to, you know, 90 percent or 105 percent. Right. Who, who's who's to say in, in some of these cities uh, for Republicans, you probably go to some of the big suburbs uh, around cities like Houston and Dallas um, and Orange County and places like that. And, you know, again, you have this this race to just spike turnout where it's the easiest. That's a recipe really to further polarize our country, right? Because you're talking about go to places where you're already popular and try to just get people really excited versus going to swing states and trying to actually win people over in in these most moderate uh, areas of our country uh, or at least most balanced parts of our country. Now, it, 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 it would fundamentally change how our politics works. And I, I think this is what people, people have a hard time wrapping their minds around just how different the country would look. But if you, you, know, if you look at places where they have a national popular vote, and there aren't very, very many big countries that are like that, but um, you've, got, you've got like Russia and Mexico and Iran. Uh, but you look at France, you know, France is probably the biggest comparable country that has a system like that. They wind up having five, six, ten candidates running. Uh, they have to have a runoff election. And oftentimes the, the winner, like in their last election, was somebody who only about 23 percent of French voters really, really supported. Right. But because they had so many candidates, Emmanuel Macron wins. 
you know, it's it's not it's not actually that democratic of a system, and it tends to divide people rather than to unite them. Well, right. So they're at what about 196 electoral votes right now with these 15 states in D.C. They have to get to what is it 270? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So how close are they to being able to do that? You mentioned Colorado and there's this vote coming up, but how close are they to being able to achieve their goal here? Yeah, we we are very concerned that, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to get there by this fall. Uh, right. But uh, but we're very concerned that they could put this compact into effect before 2024 and, uh, you know, they they won a lot of states last year because the 2016 election made this a, a major item for the on the left's agenda. And then in 2018, uh, not just Democrats, but really some some pretty hardcore progressive liberal uh, state legislators won election in 2018 and shifted a lot of states to the to the left politically. And uh, and that led to a lot of states joining this in 2019. We're we're doing everything we can at Save Our States, the, the organization that I run, to, to try to educate state legislators, educate people in some of these key states so that they don't join the National Popular Vote Compact and try to get some of the states that have done that to get out, like like Colorado, where, where hopefully the voters will reject it in November. Uh, but no, it, it's a real concern. I mean, we could we could actually see the Electoral College basically hijacked in favor of a national popular vote before the 2024 election. No, that can't happen. That It would be over. I mean, and this is yeah. so scary because people say, well, isn't the right way to do this sort of thing the old-fashioned way to fashion a, you know, a constitutional amendment and do it the right way and get everybody on board rather than doing this backdoor maneuver? But their goal is just to get it done. They don't really care whether or not it's a good faith effort. Yeah, that that's right. And, you know, I, I think they also, at least I think some of the folks behind this, they're happy to cause consternation and confusion because, uh, you know, they, they, they would prefer to just amend the Constitution and, and tear all this out. And when you look back at the last movement that was really comparable to this, which produced the 17th Amendment, you know, state legislatures used to, to elect uh, U.S. senators which was another part of the system of states that we had in our Constitution and checks and balances. And the way that that, uh, the progressives got the 17th Amendment to create a direct election for U.S. senators was was very similar. They created a lot of a lot of confusion and a lot of concern about the stability of the system. And then finally, after doing that for a couple of decades, they came along and said, well, now everybody's really unhappy. Let's just amend the Constitution. So my (laughs) my concern is that there is partly an effort going on here to just cause people to feel really insecure about how our presidential elections work. And then they'll come along and say, well, let's get rid of the Electoral College. Let's federalize control over elections in D.C. And, you know, all that would be just an incredible disaster for our country and our Constitution. Well, and I'm wondering, in light of the riots that are taking place right now, if this might backfire just because people are are feeling a lot of stress and a lot of worry over what is going on in our major cities and saying maybe this isn't the time to hand more power to the left. Not a good time to yeah. do it. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right. I mean, it. You know, I think one thing we've seen through COVID and now through all of you know all of this unrest going on is that yeah, I mean, America is a really diverse place. People living in New York City are living a very different life than folks living in Miami, Oklahoma, or you know, yeah. uh, or, or or wherever. I mean. It, 
we, we need a system that allows people to flourish in their local communities rather than trying to force one size fits all solutions out of Washington, D.C. And I, yeah. I, I think uh, hopefully people are starting to wake up to that. Well, I hope so. And people can check out your website at SaveOurStates.com and get more informed in the book, Why We Must Defend the Electoral College by Trent England. Trent, thank you so much for what you're doing. It was great to have you here and we really appreciate your being with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Janet. All right. You bet. Take care. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us on Janet Meffer today. As always, we appreciate your tuning in. We'll see you next time.